Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have an exciting twist to this week's episode. We don't have just one special guest, but we have two, both of whom are respected ministry leaders and who just happen to be father and son. Josh and Sean McDowell join us on this insightful episode for this week's podcast. Josh McDowell has traveled the world sharing the message of the truth and love of Jesus with more than 25 million people in 125 countries. He has written and co-authored 150 books, which have been published in 128 different languages. You're probably familiar with some of the best-selling books that he has written, including More Than a Carpenter and Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Sean McDowell is an inspiring communicator with a passion for equipping the church and nurturing a biblical worldview. Sean is an associate professor in the Christian Apologetics Program at Biola University and has written many books himself, including the latest, which he co-authored with his father, Josh. Now, this is a completely updated and expanded edition of the best-selling Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it's available now from Thomas Nelson. On this week's episode, we learn about Josh's struggle as an agnostic young man. We discuss properly understanding the role of apologetics and its importance in our world today and why we need to share a biblical worldview with children younger than ever before if we want to best help them build a lasting faith. Now, you can learn more about the McDowell's newest release, the updated version of Evidence That Demands a Verdict, by visiting www.readevidence.com. But first, I invite you to join me in my conversation with Josh and Sean McDowell. Josh and Sean, it is such an honor to have you both with us on the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. What better place in the world to be right now than with you? Oh, thank you. I certainly appreciate that. Now, we have something exciting to celebrate today because you've recently released an updated and expanded edition of one of the best-selling and most widely used books on Christian apologetics, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, Josh, you first released the book was it back in 1972? Is that correct? Yes. I read somewhere that um, it's been translated into over 40 languages. Is that correct? 45 languages right now, I think. Now, now I see that there are several things that are really exciting about this updated and expanded edition. And first off, most obvious perhaps is that, Sean, you had the opportunity to work on this book alongside of your father. How, How was that for you, Sean? You know what? My dad and I have written maybe a half a dozen books together or so, and each one has been special in its own regard. But I would definitely say this book was, I don't know if you could say the most special. And just along with More Than a Carpenter, everywhere I go, somebody either tells me that it was this book that helped them hold on to their faith in high school or college or some period of crisis, or is this book that was part of what God used to draw them to Christ. I mean, everywhere I go— And so to be a part of the team of this book that I think is really a part of my father's lasting legacy and just remarkable contribution, it's really humbling and it was really a lot of fun and a lot of work. Yeah, I imagine. Very cool. Now, let me ask you, Josh, what was it like having your son working on on this project with you? Yeah, it's like working with your hero in life. To be Sean's dad is one of the greatest things anybody could experience in all eternity. To be able to have the relationship we have and to speak together and write together and all is just, it's more than um, you could ever even honestly pray for. 
Next to Sean, I feel like a, a intellectual pygmy to work with your son who's so capable and everything. It just makes the end product so, so much more effective. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, sounds like you guys have a, have a lot of fun when you have the opportunity to do these these things, speak together, write together. That's That's got to be an awesome blessing. I love it. Sean, can you tell us uh, some more about what we can find in this newly updated edition. Aside from the fact that you're uh, a contributor, what are, what are some other things that the new edition provides? Well, one of the things that we did with this book is we wanted to keep the traditional formula of evidence the same. We didn't want to change it because there's a reason why there's 6 million copies in print. It's worked. But we also had to radically update a lot of the content because the last update was in 1999, and there's a lot of new issues that have come on the scene. There's a lot of objections that people have raised on the internet and scholarly journals, and we felt like it was important to address those. So as far as the content, the way it's broken down is part one is on evidence for the Bible. So we look at what makes the Bible unique, how we know the Old Testament, New Testament is true. We look at questions like, how do you know there weren't these hidden gospels or Gnostic gospels? Uh, the second section of it is where we deal with the evidence for Jesus so that he lived there's a growing movement claiming Jesus didn't even live, so we respond to that. The claims that Jesus, the idea that Jesus claimed to be the Lord, we look at the scriptural evidence, look at prophecies, the resurrection, the fate of the apostles. We look at the historical case for Jesus. And then the third one is the Old Testament, the third section, where we start walking through, really, with key archaeological figures. Is there evidence that Adam was a historical person? What about the Exodus? What about uh, the period of the United Monarchy and the conquest? So we walk through those. And then the last section is on evidence for truth, because, you know, Jason, the word of, I think, two years ago was post-truth. We hear people saying, well, that's your truth. It's not my truth. It doesn't exist. We can't know it. So we walk through just very carefully so people know, here's what truth is. Here's how you can know truth. Here's responses to some of the, I think, more radical claims of postmodernism and skeptics, so we can have confidence that there is such a thing as truth, and then in particular, that Jesus is the truth. I understand that as we look at the book here, it seems that some of the content has been updated, but then there's also just a lot of just new content, as you were saying, because there are some new issues. So how much content is new, would you say? I would say 60 to 70 percent of the book is new. And part of that is the incredible research on, say, the New and Old Testament with the tsunami of evidence that's been discovered in the last five, six, seven, eight years. And so it's like a brand new book being released. We both wanted something that is trustworthy. And second, it's one place you can go to for the majority of the questions you might have about the Bible. And so that's why we redid it and to bring it up to date. You know, you have to remember one thing, Jason. Truth changes, but its critics don't. And so there's always new questions, new criticism, which I love because it just produces a greater commitment to the Scripture in my life. Josh, I understand. I just want to back up a little bit. I understand when you first wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, you say that you wrote it as a result of kind of a struggle that you are personally experiencing. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to initially write the book? When I went off to the university, I was quite bitter. I was hurt. Uh, I was mad. I was frustrated because growing up, up until uh, graduating high school, my father was a town drunk. And anyone who has an alcoholic parent knows all that brings with it is nothing but pain. And then from six to 13 years of age for seven years, almost every week I was homosexually raped and uh, just about destroyed everything in my life. 
So when I got to university, I was bitter, I was mad, I was resentful, I was hurt, and I was dysfunctional. I met these eight students and two professors in universities, and their lives were different. And I asked them one day, why are you so different? And this one young lady just looked at me and said, Jesus Christ. And I said, oh, for God's sakes, don't give me that uh, garbage. <laughs> and all I know is that they didn't miss a beat. They challenged me to intellectually examine it. So I set out to write the book to expose those Christian students and professors at the university. And eventually it just brought me to the point that it is true. And it led me to making a decision to trust Christ then at the end of my second year in university. Wow, that's an amazing story. And to think that what came out of all of that has gone on to impact millions of people around the world um, and to help answer some of their questions that, that they're struggling with as well. That's, that's powerful. I want to step back a little bit and talk kind of big picture apologetics. In my conversations with pastors, there's some pastors that kind of push back against apologetics as a whole, feeling that it, it gets too argumentative. Could you guys share with us what you see as the value and the role of apologetics in ministry today? Well, I'll say with that pastor, it's probably argumentative because that's the kind of person you are. Mm. It's not the book. It's not the evidence. It's who you are. Evidence is neutral. It's how you use it, uh, whether it's good, positive, fruitful, or unproductive. Evidence for me is not the gospel. It's a support of the gospel. I say to people, you don't go out and just start right off witnessing by sharing the evidence. The evidence is to back up your testimony, to back up your presentation of the gospel. When people have really honest questions, you need to be prepared to answer them or to point them where to go. For me, God used it to, to open the door to consider truth. Once I believed the Bible was true, then and only then did I consider its message. And if I hadn't concluded it was true, I probably wouldn't have come to Christ. But I'd heard the gospel, but I never put any credence in the gospel. And nobody who ever shared the gospel with me could answer my questions. Every Christian I met, oh, they could tell me what I ought to believe, everything, but not why in the world should I believe it? How do you know it's true? So the purpose of evidence is to be supportive. It's a backup. It's the foundation. We actually anticipated this kind of question and or objection because I hear it somewhat frequently. I see it on the Internet. So in the introductory chapter, we lay out five reasons apologetics is critical today. I'll tell you what they are quickly. Number one, we say we are all apologists anyways. In other words, we live in an era. We have a great quote from Os Guinness who talks about how people today are in the business of relentless self-promotion, the daily me, the tweeted update. And people are used to making a case for things. And what apologetics does is just capitalize on this and say, let's use it for good because we're used to doing this anyways. Second, apologetics is really, we wrote evidence first for believers to help them just have a more confident, strong faith. I do this thing around the country called the atheist role play where I put glasses on and I, I role play an atheist and invite questions and challenges from the audience. I'm telling you, Jason, within 15 to 20 minutes, the audience gets defensive, they get angry, they get hostile. And I take the glasses off. And I, first thing I say is, how do you treat me? And second, why do you think you got defensive? And the answer is, part of it, people don't know what they believe and why. Mm. If we don't really have answers to the tough questions and somebody presses us, we get defensive. So evidence is just first for the believer to have confidence Jesus rose from the grave, confidence he claimed to be God, confidence that the Bible's really true. Third, apologetics helps students hang on to their faith when they get challenges. Studies show that one big reason kids leave the faith, not the only one, but one significant reason is they get challenged. They don't have answers. Fourth, as my dad says, apologetics helps with tough questions people raise. 
And then fifth, apologetics actually can help shape culture. So there's positive ways to do it. And then after that, one thing we include, we actually have a section in the introduction called why apologetics has a bad name, because many people say what this, you know, these pastors have said to you. And we just walk through and we say, look, it has a bad name because sometimes people overstate their case. Mm. So we're careful in evidence not to overstate the case and to really let the evidence speak for itself. Sometimes apologists don't speak with gentleness and with kindness. Sometimes apologists are not healthy people. I mean, sometimes people get into apologetics because they like to argue and they don't have healthy relationships. I fully concede that happens. Sometimes apologetics is done in kind of a cold, just rationalistic manner. And sometimes apologists can be intellectual elitist. So we fully recognize that apologetics is not always done with the grace and kindness and conviction and clarity that Jesus and the Paul and the church has always done. But the solution is not to throw apologetics out. I think that's a disastrous response for a pastor or a youth pastor. The response is to make sure it's biblical and also to make sure it's gracious and just make sure it's done in a way that answers the questions people are really asking today. I, I certainly appreciate both Josh and Sean, your response to that question, because I, I think just as you, as you said, one of the things that there's real struggle is oftentimes it's not the issue of apologetics, it's the issue of the person who is sharing or arguing or debating and uh, almost kind of abusing apologetics rather than kind of using the evidence as, as something supportive and something that's helpful and something that is positive. So I know that's something that as we dig into your book, Book, I, I love the fact that you address that right at the forefront because I think that's what um, in, in conversations I've had what, what people struggle with sometimes and and then they choose the route of just uh, avoiding it altogether which we know is not helpful at all because then what happens when you are faced as a pastor or as a youth pastor or as a ministry leader with some difficult questions and you don't have a way to respond it's so important for people to have realistic expectations when it comes to both evangelism and apologetics if people think they can just give someone this book or make an evidential argument and people will be forced to believe, of course that doesn't happen. I mean, people walked away from Jesus in the flesh. If they're going to walk away from him doing miracles and loving them, then of course they can walk away from us. So we don't do this thinking everybody's going to be converted. But I know this and I see it happening today when we present the gospel in a gracious manner in a prayerful manner, include apologetics, I see so many Christians having a bold faith, and God's still using this today to draw people to him. It's biblical. Be ready always to give an answer for the hope that is in you, First right. Peter. Right, right. And what that means is, when somebody asks you, well, how can you believe in the resurrection? How can you believe that the Bible is true, etc.? Giving a reasonable answer to that. I can't imagine any true believer being against apologetics because it's biblical. Paul used it. Jesus used it. He reasoned with the people from prophecy, everything, that he was the Messiah. And I think as, as we kind of are, are working through that and un, uh, come to that understanding of, of the power of apologetics and the benefit of apologetics, it really comes back to people in, in their journey. Because in the world in which we live, as we all know, the answer, because the Bible says so, doesn't really mean anything to people outside of the faith because there's so much skepticism. And so for us to be able to, to dig more deeply into that evidence and to point to um, extra biblical evidence is, is something that in the world in which we live now with the skeptics, that's something that's, that's really key. Would you guys agree with that? One of the main uses of evidence will be 
similar to a young lady shared with Sean and me maybe five, six weeks ago, that when she was in college, they had to write a research paper with documentation, sources, everything. So she did it on the New Testament and used evidence that demands a verdict because it's all documented. She got an A on the paper, but the professor had written and then commented to her, would circle this. You can't say that's true. How could you know this is true? Even though it was all documented, but said the paper was so well done, I'm giving you an A, even though I don't agree on your premise. A number of years later, she came to Christ. The professor did. Wow. It probably started out with her. And then another girl uh, wrote another paper on the resurrection, I think, in the class. And it looks like probably God, the Holy Spirit, used those two things to um, open up the heart and mind of that professor. That's how I like to see people use it. Last week, I've had probably 20 people tell me because I was in um, Albania. And in Albania, everybody seems to use evidence that demands a verdict. And I had at least 20 people tell me they wrote papers in the university and high school on their faith uh, using evidence. And every one of them might say, I hope you got 100. <laughs> Thank God every one of them did. That pastors they have a number of copies in their library and gift it to a young man. Can you see a young man coming in and, and saying, I really want to make my faith known and everything? And, and the pastor says, well, I would like to gift you this book that could really help you to understand why you believe what you believe. It's all documented. You don't have to quote Josh and Sean McDowell. You can go to the original sources and do papers and speeches out of it. That would just make my entire life worthwhile. Awesome. Very cool. Let's um, take a, a look at how the world, the culture in which we live, has kind of evolved since evidence that demands a verdict was, was first written and this updated edition. What have you seen as the biggest shifts in skepticism toward Christianity over the past few decades? One big area that has changed is just questions in the knowability and importance of truth itself. We've seen people with all this talk about fake news and you can't know truth and the word of the year being post-truth recently. When my father first started evidence in the early 70s, you didn't hear these claims like you can't know truth or truth is oppressive. People knew there was such a thing as truth. They just needed evidence to find out what was true. So that's why we've included an entire section unpacking that people can just have a sense of truth and know it in itself and then consider the evidence. The second difference the obvious one is the amount of information that has come since evidence was first written. So when it came out in the early 70s, what gave this book, one of the things that gave it so much value is a lot of people responded by saying there is evidence for the Bible. I've never heard of this. I don't have access to this. And so it became a bestseller instantly. Well, now there's endless information that's out there. People have access to the information that's in evidence. So you might be thinking, well, then why is it important? And I think it's two things, Jason. Number one, I think what makes it important is in an era where everybody has a voice, so to speak, and has a platform because of the internet, trust is one of the most powerful and new commodities. And this book and my father's ministry for five decades doing this really brings a sense of trust. Second is it saves time. <laughs> I mean, we're busy today. Somebody could go track down all the sources. But if you have one book that says, here's what saves you the time, the best stuff in these different areas, it brings a different value today than it did in the past. Just to end, there's not much you can add to that. But one of the differences for me is back 30, 35 years ago, when you were challenged so often, it was, how do you know that's true? Prove it to me. 
And now because of where the position on truth has gone and the cultural shift and epistemological shift, meaning the, the nature and source of truth has changed, now so often it's what right do you have to believe that? What right do you have to say that? Mm. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. You're dogmatic. I am convinced of one thing. The more a Christian understands, not just what they believe, why they believe it, they're much less influenced by the culture around them. I just saw this in another country I was in. I don't want to name the country in the last couple of weeks. Very Islamic oriented, in fact, totally. They said the believers that are standing strong are ones that know why they believe. And when you have that conviction of knowing why you believe something, you're much more prone to stand with your shoulders high and make an issue of truth. And that's what I'm praying evidence that demands a verdict will do. Jason, here's one other difference that might help. If you go back even just two decades ago, I remember when I was a kid, there were commercials of like Coke versus Pepsi. And the implication was it was these tasting challenges that if you wanted a soda, there's really two options, maybe Sprite, maybe Dr. Pepper, but there's really two options. Well, today you can buy your own soda making machine and have the exact fizz and flavor you want. Now we have Starbucks, which has 87,000 different drink options. That's indicative of our culture has gone from a few choices to an infinite number of choices. And the more I think about this, I think there's two components that really can help Christianity be a part. Like, how do we help a kid build a worldview with endless options? Number one is a worldview, a belief system that helps a young person make sense of the questions coming in the culture, like a, a lens, so to speak, to focus on what's important. And second, it's relationships, somebody that they trust. So our hope with evidence is that, number one, people will have it to build a worldview and understand, here's who Jesus is, here's how we know that it's true, here's this framework for what we believe, but second, use it relationally with people, a pastor with a congregation, a friend, a parent with their kids, a friend with a skeptic. It's when believers take this and start to live it out relationally that the gospel really sinks in. So ministry today is truth in the context of relationships. What is your hope, Josh and Sean, both of you, that pastors and ministry leaders, you know, how will they use this? I know, Sean, you just touched on, you know, maybe even uh, as a pastor with this congregation or maybe in a discipling relationship or friendship, but are there some specific things you have in mind as, as this book is put together and as you updated it that you would love to see pastors and ministry leaders using this book in a particular way? Sure. I was just in Virginia and a pastor came up to me and he said, how many books do you have? I said, well, probably a couple boxes left. He goes, I want to buy a whole box. I said, okay, tell me why. He goes, this is so important. I want my leadership to each have a copy and we're going to read some of it together and just talk about it. And I thought, oh my goodness, it's kind of an exception today in many circumstances to find leaders in the church really value the life of the mind and commit to helping people go deeper and understand and be ready to answer these tough questions. So this pastor really caught a vision. He bought it for his leadership, wanted to make sure they had it. Other people can use it. I, sometimes when pastors write sermons, if they're writing a sermon on the Exodus account, talk about what that means for our relationship with God, for our self-image, for our family. But also, why not include some of the historicity that we lay out in this chapter for the Exodus? <laughs> Why not walk through so people in their minds don't think this is just a good story from 3,000 years ago? Here's a couple reliable, trustworthy, good 
facts that somebody could have to actually demonstrate this is true. So I love it when pastors take this on a host of topics, whether it's the historicity of the patriarchs or the deaths of the apostles, the deity of Jesus Christ. I think effective pastors just weave apologetics through the regular teaching so people realize this isn't a blind faith, it's a grounded faith. The third thing I've seen that churches do, actually two others, one would be just offering a class at the church. It could be a Sunday night one-time class, could be a six-week class, could be a 10-week class, where you just say, we're going to get grounded in the faith, and we're going to take the big issues here. And the pastor could teach it, or I almost guarantee there's somebody in your church who just loves this and would jump at the opportunity uh, to teach it. And my last idea is I can tell a lot about a church when I walk in based upon the books that they highlight. If you walk in a church and there's just, for lack of a better term, kind of fluffy books that have minimal theology or worldview or apologetics, probably the pastor is not teaching with a lot of depth. But if I walk into a church and you can have some of those books, but they also have like books on theology, they have books on history, books on apologetics like evidence, that tells me right away what that pastor is teaching. And it also sets a pace for the congregation. So pastors who say a book like this or get Lee Strobel's books or get other good apologetics books, highlight them, put them out, just says in this church, we value questions. We value the life of the mind. We're not afraid of this. We think this is really true, and we want to engage our neighbors. There's a Christian leader that I've known for years, and I was so amazed how he could answer the toughest questions. He passed away not long ago, and I was talking to his wife, and I said, what amazed me about Tom was— he had such a grasp of answers. And she said, well, the reason was every night for years, every night he read his Bible and then he always, even before the biggest next day had no matter what, 15 minutes a night, he read evidence that demands a verdict. And as soon as he said that, the light went on and said, now I understand why he was so capable in answering people's questions. And I wish when you get this book, for most people, it's not just a book you sit down and just start reading right through it. Now, I would, and I have just to edit it a lot, but uh, a lot of other books like that I do. But it's almost when a pastor gets it, first you want to just peruse step by step through the whole book. See what is there. And then I would challenge any pastor, take 15 minutes a day until you finish the book and read it 15 minutes a day. And I would almost have to say, you will actually see your teaching and preaching starting to change. You start having more substance, more bringing people to truth and not just an experience. And uh, that's how I hope many pastors use it, 15 minutes a day. Hey, Sean, in your work with university students, we've already discussed that, you know, that there's a lot of questions around what is truth and what isn't truth. How do you see this book specifically being used by millennials? Well, millennials are those now 23 and up. So I teach some millennials in my graduate program, but I also teach high school students. And this new generation, you might, Gene Twenge calls them iGen. Uh, some refer to them as Generation Z, those 7 to 22. 
really, if we're just doing ministry with millennials, not that we can't reach millennials, but it's too late. And what I mean by that is, so my father first started speaking on kind of the historical evidences for the Christian faith in really the late 60s and early 70s. A lot of the big life questions were being asked in the upper teens and in 20s in college. Then in the 90s, he actually shifted and started working on high school work with high school students and then started shifting to junior high. Studies are actually showing that kids are forming their worldviews in kind of the preteen years in ways they used to in college. And I think the Internet has a lot to do with that. So we have to take worldview, theology, apologetics to students younger than we ever did before if we want them to build a lasting faith. Now, studies do show there's a number of reasons why young kids will disengage the church. And I think between maybe a third and two thirds will disengage the church. They don't all become atheists. Some come back. We got to be careful with the statistics. And they leave for a number of different reasons. And there can be emotional reasons. There can be moral reasons. There can be relational breakdown. It can just be a matter of the will. It could be a legalistic background. But one substantive reason is that kids might have believed something in their hearts to the sense that it affected the way they live, but it didn't translate into their minds. They didn't really have the confidence that this is actually true. And so there's a failure to truly live it out. So I think quite a few studies show that many young people will starting disengaging the church and some disengaging their faith if they don't have answers to their toughest questions about the Bible, about the existence of God, about the resurrection, about the uniqueness of Jesus. So when it's all said and done, what made me most excited about working on the Evidence Project was just that here's a resource pastors, youth pastors, Christian school teachers, parents could use to help kids wrestle through these tough questions. And frankly, the book Evidence, it's 800 pages long. Even if a kid doesn't read all of it and they just see that and they realize, gosh, there's a lot of evidence. There's answers that are out there. There's smart people that are Christians. Even if they don't have the answers when tough questions come up and they know that somebody does, that can help a young person hold on to their faith. So that's what I'm most excited about. And second, I've also found that when kids find out that it's true, they're actually a lot more willing to have conversations with their non-believing friends and to start living out the faith they believe in. Are there any parting words that you'd like to leave with pastors? Any encouragement that you have for them? Yes. You are one of the most important people in the world. You are the most important people in the church. The church rises or falls with its leadership. And I'm convinced the quality of a church rises and falls with the pastor's substance of what he teaches and preaches and talks about. And I just pray that this could be one resource that will affect the way you teach and preach. Amen. Thank you, brother. I certainly appreciate you being with us, Josh, and Sean, you being with us as well. Thank you so much. And thank you for this uh, new updated resource. It's already had such an impact around the world, and I can only imagine that the impact it'll have in the years to come. So thank you so much, gentlemen. I certainly appreciate you and your ministry. Thanks, Jason. We appreciate you having us on. Thanks so much. God bless, fellow. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast. And if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit 
from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.